All right. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. And, and uh, this is my favorite part of the segment. This is a really special treat today. First and foremost, this is our first Nobel laureate on the on the show. <laughs> And, and a gentleman whose work I've been following for a very long time. So I'm trying, I'm going to try not to sound like I know him and weird him out. Like he's got some friend he never knew of, but been following his work since business school. And uh, the, the list of the list of stuff is quite long. First of all, a Nobel prize awarded in 2013 for the pricing of uh, for equity pricing and, and efficient market theory uh, several books, Fishing for Fools, Narrative Economics. Um, uh, one of my favorites that brought me to his work, Irrational Exuberance, started his education career in Kalamazoo College and then transferred to Michigan and did his postgraduate work at MIT. A man that really needs no introduction in this world, Professor Robert Schiller, and, and what a treat to have you with us. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. All right. Thank you, Zach. <laughs> well, hey, what a what a perfect time uh, to read the, when we were trying to schedule this interview. You know, we knew things were going on, but as it got closer, I thought, wow, what a what a perfect time and what a treat to be able to pick your brain. So if if you wouldn't mind, I would like to talk about the Cape ratio. But before we get to that, I've been a big follower of the Cape and and uh, looking at it and have made it part of our process. Uh, but before we get to that, I really wanted to pick your brain about the state of affairs currently in economics. Um, you and I joked before we got on the air that this is a bit of a carnival for an economist right now. Um, so the first question I think that is every on everybody's mind is the inflation issue that we're currently looking at. Is this is this transitory? Is is the the word of the year has mm-hmm. been? Uh, do you think this is longer lasting? What are you seeing on the inflation front? Is this transitory or is it going to be with us for a while in your view? Well, yeah, part of it depends on what the monetary authority does. Uh, and they've indicated they, they expect to raise interest rates. So that's very much the environment right now. Uh, so the competing investment, competing to the stock market of, of bonds, government bonds, uh, which I still think are perfectly safe in terms of default. Um, uh, but th- their interest rate is starting to go up. Uh, and uh, that, that uh, means that if the alternative is bonds, it's starting to look more attractive. But at the same time, the stock market is going, has been going down this year. Uh, so the stock market looks like a better investment than it used to also. So it doesn't leave me with a very clear direction about whether to get in or out of the stock market. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, there's overpricing in a lot of areas and it's, it's being corrected or maybe being corrected. Now, it is getting corrected, and I'm starting to hear a lot of people talk about valuations on the stock market and saying that it's it, it, that valuations are getting attractive. And I, I have a hard time arguing against that in terms of, you know, where they were on a, on a relative basis. But when you look, one of the things that I've learned is that uh, valuations that appear like they're getting cheap can continue to get significantly cheaper if the earnings side of the equation is dropping. So one of the things that we're looking at, 
professor, is what will the we've seen some interesting retail results with Target and Walmart in the last couple of days, some other retail retailers selling off in sympathy. It really looks like inflation is starting to take a bite out of consumer spending. Um, do you think these do you think that the, the market is getting a lot cheaper or or are we are we going to be looking at really tough sledding as it relates to earnings going forward? I know this is kind of your wheelhouse. You've done a lot of work on this because yeah. um, I believe I, I I didn't check recently, but the Cape ratio is still pretty high, is it not? As of uh, this morning, it was thirty point six. Okay, which is yeah. quite high by historical standard still, but not as high as it was uh, just recently when it. Uh, well, it got up to over 38. Uh, not a record, but quite high by historical standard. And, and when was the record on the Cape? It was in 1999-2000, uh, right okay. at the turn of the year. Okay. I call it the millennium bubble yeah. because uh, that may not be a significant part of it, but the celebration for the new millennium seemed to coincide with a lot of optimism for investing, especially tech investing. There were all sorts of things in the newspapers about uh, about artificial intelligence and the like, and it kind of spooked us. It, it, it there's uh, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it, it, and this is a question to you. But from my point of view, there's a lot of things recently, you know, and, and not as much lately because a lot of those high flying names have been pounded pretty hard. But there seems to be a lot of echoes from that area. And, you know, with the crypto, yeah. would you agree with that? Does it remind you somewhat of 99? Or if you could take this segment of time, what do you think a good analog yeah. for, for this, this, this period has been? Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm not sure that I would use the word irrational exuberance right now. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's more fear-driven, I think. Uh, so... Uh, I, I think that uh, it, it's hard to forecast markets, not just because they have some, that this, it's competitive, but also because the drivers of the market are so com complex in our culture and our uh, stories and our uh, ideas that change through time. So we are very much in a uh, Ukraine and COVID uh, uh, emotional crisis. Uh, which is different from 2000. It wasn't like that at all. Do you think, though, one of the things that we look at is, is, or that we're focused on is there's such a sea change going on right now in markets and economy. For the last 15 years, we've had the Fed standing at the, at the ready with their, with their bazooka, ready to do whatever it takes in the, in the, in the terms yeah. of Draghi. Um, what what kind of what type of reaction or what type of uh, behavior would you expect from the markets when throughout the process of trying to wean ourselves off of that Fed support? Do you think it's as critical as guys like me have asserted that it was in terms of the market rally over the last fifteen years, or do you think that it's overblown and that the Fed stepping aside? Um, because I, I don't know if you'd agree with this statement, but from the way we look at it, when you're printing the type of CPI prints and core inflation prints that have been coming out, it seems to me like the Fed, and, and to, this is what Powell has said, 
that their their hands are tied a bit right now. Would you agree with that statement? And do you think that the economy continue can continue to move forward and the stock market can find a bottom and continue to advance without Fed assistance? Can, can we continue yeah. on without the Fed? Maybe not. <laughs> uh, you know, this isn't an exact science. I'm quoting Alfred Marshall over 100 years ago. It wasn't an exact science then, and it still isn't an exact science. Um, but the, uh, the the functioning of markets is um, still uh, affected by stories. And you mentioned the story of, uh, of the last crisis and how central banks around the world came to our rescue. Uh, and now uh, they're doing that again. Uh, or they have been until now. Uh, if uh, so, uh, there was a reason for optimism based in the story of the most recent uh, depression, uh, the most recent recession. Anyway, uh, but now uh, the story is changing, and I don't know precisely how to say what effect that will have on markets. How do you see when you look back in time? If if we look at the period that we're embarking on right now. Uh, again, you know, we're posting 40 year high uh, inflation prints. If you were to compare this period of time, one of the one of the one of the stories, and I, I love the way you put that, because I, I that that is so much a part of this business, right? Putting things in context, finding analogs and comparing stories. What period of time do you think this lines up with the best? Right. It's a, it's it's a very inaccurate. You know, it, it doesn't again, it doesn't hit, repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Um, one of the one of the periods of times that we've been comparing this to is is really the late '60s, transitioning into the early '70s. Do, do you think that's a fair comparison, or, or you know, obviously there are different aspects, but does this remind you at all of that? Does this smack yeah. of that period of time? Yeah, it does. Uh, there was an emerging story that was coming out in the '60s and '70s about wage price spiral that. Uh, we everyone is expecting inflation, and so it will be a maybe a self-fulfilling prophecy. We'll get inflation because the Fed will be unable to be worried about contracting too much. And uh, but left to its own, the the wage price spiral just continues and uh, amplifies. It this is something that takes place over years or decades. Uh, so I'm not making a forecast about tomorrow, right. uh, but it's about something that might. Uh, uh, might uh, really hit uh, fixed incomes hard, uh, investments in uh, uh, as the inflation builds. So, but but the history uh, doesn't repeat itself exactly, and so uh, that that period of the uh, '60s and '70s was described as a period of growing inflation. Uh, uh anxiety uh uh and that that uh that 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 does seem to be repeating today uh even the people who have never really experienced people you know younger adults now have never experienced inflation uh except what i call silent inflation it's only 2% a year it's been for years at that level it seems just kind of nice uh, it's uh, we've been living in a, a period of uh, uh, perfect weather, like a great perfect day, 
<laughs> that uh, affects our moods. But now there's a, a scare and people are, are learning about uh, wage price spiral. The wage price spiral has a emotional content because it, it seems to place blame uh, on, on, uh, on un labor unions for pushing up wages uh, or on uh, retailers who raise prices, uh, that these people are being unpatriotic in a way. Uh, it it, it uh, creates an emotion of anger and frustration. Uh, and so people are, are really into this inflation uh, uh, inflation uh, metric right now. It, it's uh, it's dominating our thinking increasingly. Mm -hmm. The question is what it will do over the next five or 10 years. For some people who's investing for the long term, it's hard to say. What do you, what do you, one of the ways that I've been thinking about it is really coming out of 0809, we had below trend growth for, for much of that period of time, certainly up until 2020. Um, and one of the ways I've been thinking about it is, is and, and, and feel free to correct me if I'm, I'm wrong. Like I said, I want you to take us to school here. Um, when one of the ways that we've been looking at it is saying, okay, we had this below trend growth. And in my opinion, central banks sort of filled in that gap, right? Um, and, and assisted markets, which I think, you know, had one of the, was one of the main drivers behind the fact that in real terms, you had one of the weakest decades of growth or the weakest decade of growth between yeah. 2008 and 2019 that we've had in history in real terms. Um, and yet we had the greatest bull market of all time. So it seemed to me anyway that and there was other factors at play, right? There was significant jumps in technological capability and all these different things. Um, but it seemed to me, like I said, that central banks were backfilling that. And then as I look at the cyclicality of markets, it seems only natural that looking forward, we've had a period of time of, of below, below trend growth. And now maybe we're looking at a period of time of above trend inflation. Do, do you think that that's a possibility or, or do you think that this is more fleeting in nature? It's definitely a possibility. Uh, I know that uh, uh, people are very um, focused on uh, supply chain issues and sh uh, shortages of, uh, that's also part of the, of the story, uh, which is different from the last ep other episodes of high inflation. Uh, so they may be fearful uh, uh, this time and that might bring on a, a recession. Uh, I, I worry about that, uh, but I'm still thinking that uh, uh, there's no easy shelter from this. Uh, you know, we we have highly priced markets in stock markets, uh, real estate markets, and uh, even bond markets. Uh, uh, so. Uh, you have to diversify one's portfolio and uh, and uh, not worry too much. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you one thing that's worked really well for us is as a fixed income replacement in our clients' portfolios. Looking at this zero percent interest rate environment, uh, one of the one of the one of the replacements we have used are some of these fixed indexed annuities. As a matter of oh, fact, yeah. with the with your Cape index inside of them. And it's been a it's been a phenomenal uh, uh, fixed income alternative for our clients. 
um, both in terms of the cost efficiencies over fixed income portfolios at this point in time, and then certainly over the performance side of it, the the index has performed beautifully. Um, So, and, and I, as, as a guy, as the father of the Cape ratio, I'm sure that you're not blind to the fact that it hasn't exactly been the funnest 12 years for a value based (laughs) manager, which we are much more of a manage or a value shop. I run a value based portfolio. Um, It certainly seems like that tide is beginning to shift or has begun to shift already. Do you think that through this process, that value is now going to have its time in the sun? I mean, as the father of the Cape ratio, do you think it's time for the, the more juicy side of the, of the markets as far in terms of fundamentals and in terms of value? Do you, do you think that that, yeah. that transition has got some legs to it? Well, I think uh, value is something that yeah, it may not have performed as well as we'd like over recent decades, but uh, it, it's something that uh, is, is likely to be uh, valuable again. Uh, but it's not the only investing. There's, there's also momentum uh, uh, which one can exploit. And in our uh, Cape products at Barclays Bank and elsewhere, uh, we, we, uh, we're not strictly a value investor because uh, you have to look at momentum. Uh, and uh, they, stock prices and real estate prices tend to go in the same direction uh, for a, a while. Uh, right now, it looks like there's a possibly a, a changing direction. Um, it's hard to uh, it's hard to be precise because we're talking about changing history, changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in a pandemic, which is something we weren't worrying about it at all uh, until recently, but now it's on our it's in our uh, attention. So it's always a different uh, environment that one has one has to judge. Uh, it's uh, it can't be purely mathematical finance. You have to think about what's going on. It, it's funny you bring that up, and this is a little bit of a change of course. But one of the things, we, one of the reasons I was excited to have you on is because obviously, like I've stated, I, I've been a big follower of your work. But one of the things that drew me into your work is, I mean, you've won a Nobel Prize. Obviously, the academic chops are second to none. But you also seem to. Unlike, and I'm not picking on anybody, but unlike so many economists, it seems like you inject a common man look into things, a common sense approach alongside the rigorous academic work that you're doing. Um, and, and at least from my point of view, it's created a, a, um, an academic take, a, a research-based take, but also an infusion of sort of a common sense view. Um, yeah. Where did that and and maybe most people wouldn't notice it, but if you spend a lot of time reading those economists, when I read your work, that stands out. I'm uh, glad to hear that. Yeah, as a diverse. Where did that come from? Why why are you so different in that aspect in the way that you approach these things? What created that more common sense lens that you look at things through? Well, there are trends in academic research in finance and economics that have been going on for decades now and are emerging into respectability. Behavioral finance or behavioral economics uh, is uh, uh, an effort to take account of psychology and sociology and anthropology. These things, 
uh, I, I think that often some of the most important ideas come from people who pay attention to what's going on in other areas, who have a, a, a global perspective, not just global in terms of international, but in terms of different ideas. Uh, so I think that uh, the uh, it's a good time to be an economist, <laughs> I think. Uh, the, 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 we are rethinking some of the fundamentals. And even neuroeconomics is something that's starting to emerge, uh, where people do brain, connected to brain research. Okay, so so with that, with that merger of that common sense and common man approach with, with the extensive work that and research you've done on the academic side, and I know that I'm not asking you to throw anybody in the bus. I, I just want to get, <laughs> I just want to be able to understand from your point of view, what we're looking at here. There's so much talk right now about whether the Fed is or is not behind the curve um, in terms of addressing the inflationary problem. Um, What is your take on that? And if they are behind the curve, are we in the midst of a classic Fed mistake of trying to catch up too aggressively and hiking into a slowdown? Because as I'm sure you're aware, there's a bit of a history of that. Right, waiting, waiting till a bit late in the game, and then right. and then and then overcorrecting. Um, do do you think that's what's happening, or do you think they're addressing this as they should? Well, I, I first want to thank them for their efforts. <laughs> they are definitely <laughs> trying to uh, work against uh, against the uh, unevenness in our economy. Um, but it's also uh, strikes me that maybe there is a historic tendency to be. Um, to be slow to react to uh, inflationary. I like to go way back to the uh, after World War One. We we had a lot. Well, during and after we had a lot of inflation. James Grant has written written a book called The Forgotten Depression. Uh, there was a lot of inflation, and the Fed wasn't. Uh, the, the Fed was only a few years old at that time. It could be forgiven for making a mistake. But we had a, a severe and short recession in 1920-21. Uh, but there are more recent examples. I bring that one uh, because it's 100 years ago. <laughs> it looks somewhat similar to what we have right now. And uh, the anger uh, uh, is somewhat similar. Uh, people were angry at corporations and labor unions uh, in, at that time. So that 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 makes it into sort of a a national crisis. Uh, there there were violent in the. I'm, I'm focusing maybe too much on 1920-21, but there were violent moments in the labor union movement back then. Uh, and and so we're in to that now. We're we're in an angry, divided state in the United States be, between Trumpism and Bidenism uh, at this point of time. And, uh, that's not good for the economic outlook, uh, but I'm, 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 I, it's hard to predict these things too. But I think maybe it will start to pass. Uh, uh, it was uncomfortable at, at holiday gatherings with your relatives. You would find insurmountable divisions about what's going on, and a lack of trust in basic facts that. Uh, uh, it has to hold back. Uh, it has to be a negative for the economy. One of the thing, one of the things that that has fascinated me is is 
when, when you go from a period of time and I, and you would know this far better than I would, but when you go from a period of time with so with, with interest rates, so low, historically low, going back thousands of years, um, pretty I mean, you had a couple of times where we got off the zero bound. I, I want to say, and wasn't it some between 2015 and 2017, but for the most part over the last 15 years, uh, rates have been pegged to the floor. Um, in my thinking, obviously that has encouraged a, a, a gorging, if you will, of cheap debt. Uh, we've got leverage and debt built up in the system that we, of the likes of which we've really never seen. Um, w- when you go, when you leave that environment and start going into a higher interest rate environment, how much of a headwind is that economically with rising yeah. rates when you consider the, the historical debt load that we're looking at? Yeah, uh, the Fed does seem to be responsible for some things that are going on. Uh, uh, putting interest rates at such a low level, uh, especially it may, it may have been justified um, because of the pandemic, but uh, it certainly has, uh, ha- has an effect. The Fed has almost $3 trillion worth of mortgage securities in its portfolio. Uh, what, how much did it have? 20 years ago, zero, <laughs> none of that. Right. So uh, the Fed is, uh, is helping push uh, the housing market up. Uh, and uh, uh, a lot of people uh, find it uh, difficult to understand what the, tech, what the Fed does, but they do um, have some faith in the Fed. It seems to be uh, a savior in, in, the, in the last great uh, financial crisis, 2007 through 2009. Uh, and so they, that's the story that um, uh, uh, th- that is driving our thinking. Uh, unfortunately, it's kind of a precarious story. Uh, people don't naturally place such faith in central bankers. <laughs> and um, it's also, a, the story is a, uh, 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 a do what it uh, uh, the the monetary authority will do what it takes to, to save the economy uh, idea that the, that that is a stabilizing influence uh, and as long as that lasts it will help support markets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What did you make of it? it and I, I've talked about this at length on our show before, but I want to get your take because. Obviously, you look at things from a different angle and have been watching these things for considerably longer than I have. Um, what did you make of the Fed? And I don't want to use the word violating because I want to leave that up to you. But it seemed to me like there was a violation of the Federal Reserve Act uh, during uh, 2020 when the Fed. Now, they didn't directly step in and buy corporate bonds, but they funded that special purpose vehicle for the Treasury to step in and buy corporate bonds. What did you think of that? Did you think that that was an acceptable course of action for a central bank to take? Or do you think that that was a bit over the line? There was a, a Great Depression scare during the uh, 2020 recession. Uh, I do counts of frequency of mention of things like that. And th- it did seem that people were very scared. So uh, it could have worked. It could have been worse. So. Uh, I, I think the Fed really should think about the reassurances they can give. 
uh, that there be, the the aggressive monetary policy that was announced in uh, March of 2020 uh, really helped push the markets up. It kind of overshot, <laughs> but uh, uh, it looks quite dramatic. Uh, we 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 have to have a Fed that uh, is astute in understanding human psychology and how the how the markets will react to uh, a, a, a new uh, precedent uh, changing uh, uh, monetary policy. Again, the public doesn't, most people have not taken an economics course, <laughs> but, they, uh, but they do think they had someone, Janet Yellen and now Jerome Powell, who's on their side. Uh, and uh, uh, that has been a powerful uh, source of stability in the economy. Uh, but I, I, I think that in retrospect, uh, they may have been a little bit too generous uh, mm-hmm. and uh, they could have uh, had a foot light, a light foot on the brake <laughs> before this. Okay, now, anyway, I'm, go uh, ahead. I, how much time are we, I'm running out of time because of the delays. Oh no! That we, we how when, when do you need to go? We'll we'll cut this off when you need to go. Well, I told my wife I'd pick her up at noon, but I, I'm, okay. I'm pretty running out of time. Okay, so do you want me to wrap this up in like five minutes? Yeah, can we do that? Yeah, we, yeah, we can do that. I appreciate that. Um, okay, so I, I know you're a busy man, and I don't want to keep you too long. But one thing I did want to ask you about was um, something that I thought was fairly significant coming out of the Bank of Japan and 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 uh, announced by Kuroda himself was this pegging of, of rates at, at, at 25 basis points on JGBs and this, and this basically somewhat to me smacked a bit of a Mario Draghi moment. We'll do whatever it takes and we'll buy as many bonds as you can issue at, at, at yeah. 25 basis points. Um, what I have been scratching my head and talking to a lot of colleagues about what does that mean? What will the impacts of that be? Is this sort of a last gasp of, of extreme monetary yeah. policy by the BOJ? How do you interpret that measure? And what do you think it means going forward? Well, the BOJ has been a model for other central banks uh, going years into the past. It was the Bank of Japan or the Japanese government that invented quantitative easing. Uh, and legitimize that. Uh, and so now we, we've been through various stages of or cycles of quantitative easing. Uh, but also, uh, Japan has had a very low inflation rate, despite uh, stimulative monetary policy. Uh, so maybe uh, Kuroda, uh, the head of their central bank, thinks that there's something about Japanese economy that uh, doesn't react with inflation. Uh, and there's uh, need stimulus. Uh, so they're continuing to follow that idea. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts. Uh, I feel a, a little bit skeptical of thinking that the Japanese economy is not so different from others and it has the same vulnerabilities. Um, okay, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and... Do, do you, I mean, do you think this will help them? Do you think this will precipitate, you know, one of the things we, we call in the business, the widow maker trade, shorting the yen, right? For the last, <laughs> really, you know, from, from really the late eighties 
that's been a bad move. Do you think that this move pushes that over the edge? Do you think that we will see continued pressure on the yen from here? Or do you think it will be the same old story, uh, which is, you know, maybe you'll see some weakness over a short period of time, but it's going to pop right back up because the underlying issues are still the same. Yeah, it's kind of a puzzle why the dollar has been strong and the yen yen has been weak, because uh, there are not such inherent differences in our economies. We're both uh, technologically savvy uh, economies with a lot of smart people and uh, uh, a history of relative stability. Uh, So I'm not sure why uh, it's different in Japan. I don't know what uh, what I could offer. And the, the the CAPE ratio in Japan used to be extremely high, mm-hmm. uh, close to a hundred. Yeah, it was like ninety eight, wasn't it? At the peak, something like yeah, that. Yeah, very close. Yeah. yeah. Um, but now it's down, and it looks. Uh, uh, if you think that there's a, a buy upward bias in Japanese uh, thinking, then maybe this is a good time to invest in Japan. The va- yeah, the valuations certainly look uh, certainly look attractive and juicy to some level. Well, yeah. Professor, I, I realize that you've got to run. You've got some domestic duties you've got to attend to. So I, I, I cannot appreciate you enough for coming on. And uh, thank you so much. And, and uh, like I said, been following your work for a long time. It's a real treat to get okay. to, to talk with you. And uh, we'll be following your op-eds and, and uh, any other work that you put out. And um it, it, if nothing else, we've got some real interesting things to keep an eye on over the next uh, next couple of years, huh? I think so. Yeah. It'll be, it's a good time to be an economist. Yes, sir. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope you guys enjoyed this discussion we have with Professor Robert Schiller. Uh, thank you again, Professor, for joining us. And I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I do. And uh, got another great interview on tap for you next week. So make sure you don't miss that. Anyway, thanks for listening, and you're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. All right, Professor, thank you so much, and sorry for all the technical difficulties, and uh, have a wonderful uh, a wonderful day. And, and once again, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. All right. Nice all day. Right. It was fun. Talking all, all right. Thank you, Professor. We'll talk to you again. Bye-bye. Bye. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management. Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.